This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to a special live recording. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. On today's episode, we're doing things a little different. A couple weeks ago, we paired up with Heron Arts in San Francisco, California for a live virtual panel to talk about their two-person show, Chromotherapy featuring the artists Eric Otto and Liz Tran, as well as Laura Guido-Clark, an expert on color and founder of Love Good Color. The exhibition explores the use of color and how it affects emotions, so we hosted a conversation about those topics and more and recorded it so that we could share it with y'all as well. Nicole and I definitely get a little nervous before doing live events, but I gotta say it was super encouraging to recognize some of our listeners in the call. So I just wanted to say thank you so much to those of you that joined us. It really warms our heart and I am just so grateful to have you hang out with us. And for those of you that didn't, no worries, cause here it is. Um, well, I can start. I just wanted to thank everyone for coming. My name is Tova Lobatz and I'm the director at Heron Arts, um, where the we have the exhibition Chromotherapy up by Eric Otto and Liz Tran. Um, and today we're here to have a panel discussion with them and with Laura Guido Clark. And there, she's a color expert and knows a lot about color and also analyzed some of Eric and Liz's paintings. So thank you all for coming. We hope at some point, if you're in San Francisco, where the gallery is, you can come and see the show. Um, whenever it is safe to do so. So thanks again for joining and um, yeah, let's get started. Great, well, thank you so much uh, Tova and um, Heron Arts for hosting this panel discussion. Um, my name is Nicole Muller and I am one half of Beyond the Studio podcast, uh, which is partnering with Heron Arts for this event. Um, I'm joined by my fellow co-host, uh, Amanda Adams. Hi, I'm Amanda Adams. I'm the other co-host um, and I'm a Baltimore-based artist and we are so excited to be having this conversation today. For the podcast, we host conversations about the business of being an artist and we try to talk about the behind the scenes of the work and to really hear more about kind of what's going on in the artist's world and life uh, beyond just the visual work. Let's start with a question. Can you share a brief history of, and this is for all of you, um, a brief history of your work and careers and what led you to creating this particular body of work? Let's start with Liz. So I'm a Seattle-based artist and I have been here for about 20 years and been practicing as a professional artist for 20 years. Um, I'm primarily based in painting but I also kind of dabble in whatever mediums and media I can find as well. And so I'm always branching out. I love large scale installations. Um, those are based in painting as well, but are much more immersive. Yeah, and I'm thrilled to be here and be talking with all of you. Do you want me to say a little bit about the work in the show too, this time around? Cause I'm happy to share. 
Yeah, that would be great. Let's hear a little bit about the works um, in this exhibition and um, maybe some of the ideas that you were thinking about um, what led you to um, creating this particular body, whether it's an extension of your practice or something different you were thinking about. So this series of work that I have in the exhibition at Heron is part of my series called I'll Be Your Mirror. And it's it came out of uh, Rorschach test imageries. Those are the ink, ink blot tests, um, you know, mush ink together, pull it apart, and then it is interpreted by the viewer. And I have these vague memories of those being given to me as a child. My parents, I think they sent, they sent me to the university to be studied, to have my brain studied for some reason. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, that kept coming up, that imagery kept coming up. And then I started working with it just before the pandemic hit. And once that hit and I was quarantined and also just um, looking for anything to maintain some sense of balance and order. And there's something about the, the duality and the um, even the method of making the Rorschachs that uh, I found to be very grounding. It's repetitive, it's meditative, and also there's not a huge amount of decision-making. So I went to that as a bit of a escapism and as a way to just get through things. But I'll Be Your Mirror, you know, is the name of it. And that's, a, that's actually a Velvet Underground song. So I'm referring to how the subjectivity of art and and color too, um, how each viewer brings their own interpretation into each piece. So that's pretty much it. And Eric, I'll ask you the same question. Um, can you share us a brief, or share with us a brief history of your work and career and what led you to creating this particular body of work? Hey everyone, I'm Eric, uh, Eric Otto. Thanks for having me. Um, I feel like, my whole life I've been compelled to make things. In 2005, I moved to San Francisco and it was right after college that I decided I want to do art for full time. Uh, at, the, at the time, I was heavily in, uh, involved in music and dance as well. Um, but drawing and painting kind of slowly kind of rose to the top, just felt more my thing as far as communicating. So shows like a visual path and uh, I've always been sort of an advocate of creative expression as a means of therapy, and that's sort of how I got into it, which is why. Um, and I would feel, I feel since the beginning, uh, my work has been very mixed media, like combining different materials and, and uh, creating different reactions between those materials. I've had an interest in light, um, just movement, like capturing movement uh, while creating a sense of balance through the composition of the materials. Um, and the work for this show, um, more, more of the same, but in like a very focused punch of, of, of emphasizing the materials themselves uh, as a means to, you know, like Liz said, it was, it was sort of like it's therapeutic or escapism to just create work during a stressful time. Um, and then I felt like if I were to make work, like my role as an artist would be to inspire hope and peace and just comfort in other people. So I, I really kind of put more focus on that for the show and, and kind of moving forward. 
Thank you. And Laura, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you use color as a tool? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if I had any way to explain what I do, it's about uh, empowerment. Color as a tool for empowerment. I'm very deeply dedicated to that. My career path was um, that of an experienced consultant where I work with large firms, um, Herman Miller, Samsung, on their products to make them more humanistic, to make them more compelling and, and, and to help them feel right in an environment and for people. And what I noticed was that there was such a huge shift for the people that were participating in their products or, or buying their products and made me wonder, what about the people who couldn't afford those services? So I started a nonprofit called Project Color Core and we go into urban environments and we teach children and communities about the power of color and we become, they become co-designers of their space. And so color is this way of them expressing their inner beauty. And it is an incredibly powerful thing to watch and to see the shift and how they feel when they, when they come to school or their community um, club. Um, and that made me want to study color more. And so for the last nine years, developed a new way of looking at color through the senses and neuroscience, um, which is how I met Tova. And she asked if I would want to, you know, come in and, and, and look at and Liz and Eric's work and, and talk about it. And I was really honored and I was really moved, moved by their work. Yeah, um, that really brings us to our, our next question. And we um, are really eager to hear Laura's perspective on this too. Um, but we thought we could start off with uh, each of the artists sharing a little bit about um, how they're using and interpreting color within their own work. Um, I think as artists, color, you know, can, can often be a primary um, tool for our work. Um, sometimes it's more intuitive um, or emotional. Um, in other cases, it can be symbolic or more descriptive. So um, I'm curious for each of you um, as, you know, artists that, that work in, um, in different ways, how, how are you each thinking about color um, within your own body of work? Um, and, you know, even more specifically within the works in the show, um, as the, the title of the exhibition is uh, Chromotherapy. So maybe uh, we could start with Eric for this one. Cool. I guess like a uh, funny story, like every time I set out for a particular piece or a series of work or say like a commission mural, I, I start from scratch every time thinking like, oh, I'm going to pick out the best color palette ever. And, you know, like where you go to the, the, the paint store or whatever, and you're picking out color chips and whatnot, and then you, you arrive on what feels right. And then I come back to the studio and it almost is like exactly the same color palette as the last <laughs> series or work. Uh, so I feel like with that said, I, I, I seem to have arrived in like a color palette that has become sort of my signature. And just as far as the, co the combination of these colors, you know, whether it be the blues or the reds, um, you know, just feels right. And, and I, I feel like it's probably obvious to common knowledge, but, you know, the blues tend to be more, you know, calm and settling while the reds kind of have like a focus punch of intensity. So I kind of use the colors accordingly. And yeah, it's very much about, you know, 
intuitively using them, but as well as trying to spark a certain emotion from myself and trying to convey that same emotion to others through the use of color. And, and I, like, no doubt have I done research, reading, internet sleuthing, just looking into the background of, like, how we perceive color and how color affects us. Uh, no way am I an expert, but, uh, you know, I am thinking about all those things. Um, and I guess for this show, my color was a lot to do with light. And so that opened up a whole nother kind of like, how can you use light to make people feel a certain something? So I don't know. It's, it's something I'm often thinking about and then also not thinking about <laughs> and just kind of letting it happen. Uh, but it, like I said, I end up kind of in within the same kind of color palette every time. But yeah. It's interesting how color um, can almost become like a, a form of visual language for many artists mm -hmm. and um, have a lot to do with the identity of the works and the person behind them. Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit later about um, how Laura works with color um, on a, an even larger scale when it, um, you know, spans beyond individuals and um, even in the commercial context and working with organizations. Um, but starting with uh, Liz, how do you use and interpret color um, in your own work, which is very vibrant and colorful as well? Yeah, um, I really identify with what Eric said, like, my color usage is is very intuitive and it's a dialogue that I've just naturally developed over time. Um, and I think each artist kind of has their own um, palette that they work with. And mine actually started out a lot more subdued 20 something years ago and has gradually you know, morphed and become much brighter than, than my previous work. Um, and I think that's largely in part to the fact that I recognized that, that the color that I was working with actually did impact my mood. And it wasn't until recently that I actually started diving into like the, well, I've always, I've always learned about color theory and all of that, but um, I've been reading a lot more books about the history of color and how it's used and all of that. Um, so I don't feel like I'm actually to the point, it's good thing Laura's here because um, I'm not actually to the point where I can accurately um, say which specific color does which thing for me because it's also like every color combined together and interact, interacting with one another. So there's so much going on that it's hard, it's difficult for me to break that down. Um, especially with this most recent body of work because I'm still in the middle of it. Um, but I know that with this body of work, I really kind of went balls out um, and just put as much fluorescent pink and just really like vibrant color uh, as I possibly could just because I knew that's what I personally needed to look at. So a bit of it is selfishness. And, um, and I, I hope people feel the the joy that I'm trying to cultivate through the color but that's how it that's how I use it 
Well, it's interesting because you point something out, which is that color doesn't exist um, independently or, um, you know, color is, is so relative. It only exists in relation to other things. And so the context of color is so important or, um, or the combination or the confluence of color like you're describing in your own work. So that's a really great segue into this next question, um, which is for Laura. And that is to um, maybe share a little bit of your own take on the use of color in the works uh, within the exhibition of Liz and Eric's work, uh, Chromotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit more um, broadly too about how color is influenced by context, whether through the show or maybe other examples from your own work and, and career. So I think one of the things that moves me the most about color um, just in general is that even if you don't see color, you feel color. It's a wavelength. So studies have shown that when they change the color in a room, um, students will experience uh, lower blood pressure and lower disruptive behavior, but this is incited as well as blind students. So they understand that we're feeling it. It's a wavelength. And to me, that just blows me away. It just moves me so much because um, it takes on something bigger and it is sensorial. You're going to taste it. You're going to smell it. You're going to touch it. And I think what I loved about Eric and Liz's work is that one was so minimal, Eric on one end, being very mineral, minimal and using color very judiciously. And then Liz using it with like full hearted um, explosion and you felt it. So for example, on Eric in Chroma, the purple that he uses is calm. There's a depth to it. I wanna explain to everyone that it isn't actually just the color that matters or the hue. Actually the brightness and the lightness of a color matter more. Um, in our perception. And so for Eric, there is this calmness, you're plunging right into it. And then the neon orange, it encourages critical thinking because actually orange increases the oxygenation in the brain and it opens it up and it energizes it. And so you were, the duality of it was really, really potent. And then with Liz's work, um, I'm just gonna take, I'll be your mirror 13. And um, it was bursting with these unexpected like elements from really sugary, like you could taste the sweetness of the pink all the way to something incredibly acidic. And um, it was, but it was balanced. Like um, I just give you so much credit because you balanced it. And so overall there was a sense of calm and lightheartedness and happiness um, from a neuroscience standpoint. Uh, What was interesting, it was that it ranged from high saturation and high brightness to low saturation and brightness. So the viewer simultaneously experiences tranquility, awe, neutrality, boldness. Like you're just sitting there going, you know, like you're just like all of it is coming towards you. And so what I loved was intuitively that you what you were both trying to do was what in my work, maybe from neuroscience or from color study, we were very aligned. I mean, I, that made me really happy because I told Tova I was nervous to share 
<laughs> what I what I wrote because I, I I was afraid of like just saying what I was going to say and then Liz and Eric were like oh my god you know like this felt like what we were trying to communicate so um, there was a synergy to it that made me happy and um, to your point and this is my last point is context is very important in color there's this thing called the law of simultaneous contrast and all it all it means is that when two colors are put near each other, they will influence and change the way you perceive, they perceive each other. So it isn't like in painting, you're gonna lay down one color and then lay down another without it influencing or changing your perception of it. So all of it matters. And of course your dosage matters, so yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I am constantly using these like three color palettes in my own work. And I find that I'm using a lot of the same colors, but depending on the combination that I use, I get a completely different experience from it. So it's nice to understand a little bit more about why <laughs> that is the case. This is a little bit of a segue uh, into more of the, the motivation of the work, but also the motivation of, of you as artists and individuals kind of going through this very tumultuous and wild experience that has been the last 10 to 12 months of, of our lives. Um, how has the last year impacted your practice and the way that you approach your work, um, the way that you're thinking about it, and uh, if color is part of that conversation as well? Let's start with Liz. So this past year, so I haven't processed everything yet because I still feel like we're in this last year which we are to a certain extent, um, although some things have changed. Uh, for me, I actually, I took a little bit of a breather at the very beginning. Um, and then I have been kind of working nonstop, I think as a way to just, you know, distract myself to <laughs> escapism comes up again. Um, I, I am using it as a therapeutic tool as well. So I've just been, I've been working a lot more than normal, which I realize is probably the opposite of a lot of people. Um, and as far as color goes and how it's impacted color, I have actually completely changed my wardrobe to a more colorful wardrobe. I dyed my hair purple, if you haven't noticed. Um, I have injected a lot more color just into my daily life because I feel like I, I, I need it to keep going. Um, and the more I can get a vibrant color, the better it is. I feel like I'm talking about it like it's a drug or something, you know? But I guess for me, it kind of is. So yeah, I've gotten a lot more vibrant in the past year. It hasn't been easy, but um, yeah. And, and here I am wearing a black shirt and a colored talk. I almost did that, Eric. And then I'm like, oh. yeah, <laughs> old habits die hard. I, but I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I like some things that you guys have been saying have made me think about my use of color or my minimal use of color. And uh, like Liz was talking about how like her colors have become more and more like saturated. And I, I definitely went through that as well. I remember early on, most of the paint, uh, just because I was a broke artist, like most of the paint I used was like the off 
oops paint, like the mist tints at like Home Depot. And if you've gone through that, they're typically desaturated pastel colors. And it wasn't until I had budgets and income that I could buy like the good stuff and like, you know, I'll get that premium. And then you, 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 you lay out red, how red is supposed to look. And you're like, wow, like how that can like change your mood. And so I think definitely like I grew in appreciation and confidence to use um, more vibrant and rich colors and even learning how to build color up slowly, like Mark Rothko style, like luminous color, like having colored ground on top of colored background and working forward to like whatever color is going to sit on top. You don't see all the stuff below it, but like Laura said, you feel it. So yeah, I guess like, and then with this work, being that things were heavy for me, I guess the way I kind of took it, um, because I'm like moody or whatnot, it was like a deep, it's heavy. So I went with color, but I went with more like deeper, deeper tones to where it's like a dark purple or a really dark blue where like the color is rich and it's there, but it's like subdued. Um, I felt like that was kind of fitting as far as in contrast to the, the light source that eventually kind of affects it. Um, and I will say at the beginning of the pandemic, like when no one knew what was going on and shops in Brooklyn were where I'm, where I'm based now were, were closing. And I, I came out of winter, um, with very little money and I made some, some whatever wrong choices in, in 19. And so I didn't really, I wasn't sitting on a lot of material to just like get cracking and, I remember having to like cut down like a previous installation to build my own panels and literally work with whatever I had around me. And um, I was assisting a studio mate to get like pigments and paints. And I found uh, sand and plaster and cement within the warehouse that my studio is in. Asked her about it. What's up with this? She said, have at it. And that's, I had experimented with those materials in the past, but it was to me like a confirming sort of sign that this is, this is it. This is the moment to really focus in on working with these materials and starting to really understand how I can like, you know, make it my thing. So it, it kind of was a lack of access, not knowing when that access would return uh, and, and a sense of urgency to like, to make, to make work at that time, I, I needed to do something and the work, um naturally with the raw materials became more of a physicality kind of thing like actually moving and like you know breaking a sweat like sanding chipping grinding scraping it became much different than than laying down paint as i as i had been used to and it was it it, it helped me dive into the work in that sense like not knowing kind of where it was going was in relation to like where we're not knowing where we're all headed and it helped me kind of keep in tune and, and, you know, um, maybe more open to like, like not by not knowing what the final result was going to be. It just kind of, kind of kept me in tune with the process. Um, so I, I, I realized I started this with jumping in and I <laughs> forgot the question, but I was trying to answer that. And I think I did. I think you did. Um, and that is super relatable. I think so many of us through 
this last year have had to become extremely resourceful with how we're creating work, if we're able to create work, um, just due to access and limitations with being in a smaller space or, or not having access to the stores you know, normally go to, or even to be able to go see art the way that you normally would. Um, and so we love asking, you know, how, especially the last year has been impacting people because everyone is really going through it together. And I think it, it helps to hear how other artists are going through it. And Laura, obviously, you are you are also a, a person going through this last year. How how has it been affecting you and and your work and your approach to color? And and if you have any thoughts on what we've been saying thus far? Yeah, no, I love what I love what everybody has been talking about. And I, I think for me, one of the greatest challenges finding comfort and ambiguity. It's not easy, you know, and um, everything being ambiguous makes you have to flow in different ways. And we had to transition what we were doing, which was teaching in person um, our color classes to an online, online experience, which when you think of color, you don't really think of it that way, you know? So we had to figure out all new ways to experience what we were trying to communicate online and have people feel part of it. So so I thought that that was incredible. Um, On a personal note, it was interesting because the color system that we developed has all of these color chips, you know, and I started keeping a color diary, really interesting. And um, in the very beginning, it was the saddest little thing you ever saw. I barely use color. <laughs> Every day I was like, like little bits of color here and there. And I had this epiphany about 30 days into my color diary. Like, why am I so interested in learning how I'm feeling? I, I think I should just start thinking about how I want to feel. And total explosion, right? Like all of a sudden my whole journal became alive because I thought about like how how I'd like to feel and it actually shifted everything when I would look at those colors like I go back now and I look at journal and it just makes me so happy that I took this three-month period of time and you know documented it because it allowed me to say something that I normally wouldn't with color and so for me it was a very personal journey and what I find I'm often asked is how how we're going to create color in a very different way um, post-COVID and have been in many different um, conferences and things like that, talking about that. And it will shift because our human needs are shifting and color will have to meet that need, right? And so we talk a lot about the qualities of color we're going to be craving and things like that. So the shift is there and everybody's feeling it. And we know that color can help us feel better. So we'll use it differently. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear um, more about that, uh, maybe from your perspective, Laura, um, as uh, you each have talked about how um, your, you know, personal use of color has shifted throughout the course of the year. Um, If, you know, through your work um, or through looking at the works, you know, in the show, working with artists um, versus some of these other contexts that you're having conversations about color in, um, whether with, you know, individuals or organizations, um, 
what other shifts have you started to see in these conversations about um, color and you know how they're reflected, um, reflecting the needs of our time? Um, you know, in our work in communities, for example, we work with kids and we just finished two projects, um, a boys and girls club in Long Beach and um, another project that we just finished, which was um, the Children's Assessment Center in Houston, Texas. And what we're finding is this, the capacity of color to actually bring, you know, equity and well-being. And one of the things that we noticed, for example, like five or six years ago, when we asked kids how they wanted to feel when they came to school, safe was a small word in the big word cloud, but it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that human need of, of feeling safe means that the kinds of colors that we would probably be using are gonna be a little bit different than if they said, I wanna feel extremely excited and happy all the time, you know? And so it's this balance. And so what we're working on as people go back to work is, what are the types of things that we're gonna to have to address? You know, confidence, a sense of safety, a sense of trust. These are things that we never had to address at work, really. Those are implied in your culture, but you didn't have to feel that around you, right? And these are visual cues and you're wearing, you know, a mask. And so what you're seeing is gonna really impact the way that you feel because there aren't a lot of other things that you're experiencing with the mask on. So we're looking at all of those nuances, you know, as we're um, participating with, you know, different companies and also working with designers on environments and spaces. So that's kind of, you know, what we're seeing. Yeah, this is so interesting um, to hear about your work and how um, how much some of, or really everything that's been happening around us has been influencing these um, conversations about, um, you know, how color is impacting that experience and feeling. Um, and then from the artist's point of view, how, you know, color has been impacting, you know, the way that you feel and look and think about your work um, and your process. And so we have a couple of more, a couple more questions here for the panel, but um, we did want to create some space for um, you all who are joining us here um, in the audience and tuning in to ask some questions of the artists and of Laura. So if you have anything um, that you'd like to add into the chat, um, Amanda and I can certainly relay that to them, um, but we'll create a little bit more time here too, if you'd like to unmute yourself um, and jump in with a question. So maybe while folks are thinking about questions they might have uh, for the three panelists here, We'll, uh, we'll pull up a few more questions here that we have prepared. So this is uh, fairly open-ended uh, to whoever um, here would like to respond, but we, um, and a little bit of a segue from um, what we've been talking about related to the importance of color, um, but more broadly speaking, um, and you know, specifically within the arts, but what other kinds of shifts have you been noticing um, happening as a result of this year um, around you or, um, since we've also been kind of talking about that, um, the difference or the tension between, you know, how we feel or what is happening and how we want to feel or what we want to be happening. 
just wondering if there's anything else that, you know, comes to mind. Um, what kinds of shifts would you like to be seeing um, or have you been seeing throughout your own experience as um, artists and colorists? I'll jump in. Um, I, I feel like in general, people are just more aware of what is going on around them. Um, I like to think that the, uh, the pandemic was sort of their, sort of this necessary evil to get us to all stop and to really be aware of what's going on. Um, I have noticed for my own sake, um, just even like communication with uh, people about my work, um, whether for a commission project or just talking about my art um, online, it just, there just seems to be more, uh, even more uh, direct connection and people are actually listening. There's like more empathy or compassion, if you will. Uh, I think people realize the, the value of some of this stuff and me included at first, I was like, Oh no, like, I guess this is it for people like me, but it turns out it was quite the opposite. Um, so, and I, I just see just more of an openness to, to reinvent, you know, the way we do things and the way we present things. And, um, I, I think it's kind of incredible, you know, really like, um, something this huge kind of just cuts everybody down to like an even playing field and sort of nobody has a right or wrong answer. Nobody knows. So anything is, is possible. Uh, I, I find it kind of exciting, really. So I want to see more of that. I want to see more people, you know, reinventing themselves and, and being open to to changes and adapting so that we can kind of overcome some of the challenges and get, you know, it's, it's you know, at first it was clunky and it's, it's still not, doesn't replace the real thing, but like doing things like this, like panel discussions, um, being able to tune into a, a museum or a show that's in Paris and I'm, you know, I'm wherever. And so I think, you know, having more access to more things, um, can be kind of cool. Uh, and it's about like kind of pushing that forward. So yeah, <laughs> I always end with that, but yeah, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, I guess I, I just want to, I, I guess the, the main point is just having a more direct connection me as an artist with the people that uh follow or admire my work i feel like i'm like talking directly to them now and and i'm not afraid to you know i'm not one to sit around and wait for other people to kind of figure it out for me i'm gonna try to like you know make those connections and and they've been more than real more than ever this this last year so looking to see looking forward to see where this all goes I, I love that, Eric, and I just wanted to say that if you think about history, never have we globally experienced the same thing simultaneously. You know, that is a huge fundamental shift, right? And so this yeah. empathy, this shared humanity that you're talking about, I think made us all more human and made us prioritize what's important and made us realize how connection is everything. I think art is, I think what both of you are doing is more important than it's ever been, you know, and I think it will continue to be that. And um, I, I actually feel that, well, I've always felt that out of darkness comes light. So I really believe that it's a very hopeful time right now. So, 
I think, yeah, things are shifting quickly. And especially in the art world, I feel like they really needed to shift. And we're already, things were already starting to shift because of the internet um, and the barrier between the artist and the viewer is being broken down through the internet. And we don't have to rely on the traditional institutions that we've relied on in the past, which weren't necessarily fair and equitable either. So that's all shifting. A lot of places are being held accountable. Um, and a lot of institutions that I've seen recently are really examining themselves and and trying to figure out how to stay relevant during these times, which is to, you know, foster relationships with, with the viewers and, and be more open and accessible. So that's a change that I've noticed um, within the art world that really excites me. I don't even remember what the original question was. So <laughs> I'm just gonna go off of what Eric was talking about. <laughs> no, you nailed it, you nailed it. Yeah. I was just gonna say one more thing, like there's no one way to be an artist. And I think even more so now, it's about listening to your own heart and doing what you truly want to do. Um, and artists have so much more control over their career than they ever used to. Yeah, it's definitely, um, yeah, something we really um, preach and talk about um, a lot too on our podcast. and. Um, it's so interesting to hear you all speak about this while there seem to be more physical barriers in, you know, being able to gather or to view work in person. Um, it does seem like in other ways, um, this kind of digital access has really dissolved, you know, other, other types of barriers and, um, and just what I think Laura was saying earlier about um, navigating ambiguity and being sort of comfortable living in that space has been echoed in um, some of your responses. I noticed we have a few questions coming in um, through the chat here. And so um, this first one that comes from Luis is from Liz. Uh, she asks or says that your work seems to reflect colors from nature and also synthetic and technology environments. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your inspiration for the colors that you choose? Sure, so I am obsessed with nature. My favorite place to be is deep in the woods. Um, and I'm really big into mushroom hunting and obsessed with, obsessed with the color, the natural colors of the world. Um, and I feel like I can never mimic that with my painting uh, as much as I try. Um, but I do love working with, I've, I've just started working with more plant material and I'm an avid gardener. I love growing flowers and I've started doing more work with the actual uh, material, like natural materials combined with my paintings and also taking my paintings into the natural environment and turning them into installations and um, kind of playing off the synthetic hues within my work and the natural hues within nature. Does that make sense? We, we've been watching a lot of nature programs this past year, like a lot of David Attenborough. And when you first see your work, the colors seem, um, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, almost unnatural, they're sort of supernatural. Mm -hmm. 
And then when you go back to all those crazy nature shows and you actually get outside, the colours actually are supernatural, whether they're on animals, flora, mushrooms, just anything. The colours, every colour that you can imagine exists in some vibrancy in nature. And your work is so stimulating and calm at the same time. And it immediately brought these kinds of crazy pops of colour that you see in the natural world to my mind. And then on the other swing spectrum, our wonderful teenage children live in the twilight zone of Fortnite or Minecraft or Roblox, where there's this other extraordinary opportunity to express yourself in supernatural colors. And um, actually a lot of your work brought, uh, you, did you see Travis Scott's uh, live performance of Astro World on Fortnite? These insanely gorgeous colors and it's like the moving from nature right the way through to silicon. And your work just seems to encapsulate this bridge in the middle. It's yeah. extraordinary. And then, you know, the bridge goes the other way between stimulating and calm. Really beautiful. I live um, in the Northwest. So I live in a very green and gray place. Although there are some vibrant colors within nature, but not as much as other places and, and and when you were speaking about that I was thinking about um, I spend a lot of time in Iceland or used to spend like a month or two in the winter time there uh, every year for about like eight years I think um, so in the northern Iceland too and and the the northern lights is kind of what came to my mind too because it seems supernatural like it doesn't seem like you know, that should even exist for us to view. And um, part of me wants to create something spectacular, like, like something just out of this world. Um, yeah, so I'm inspired by nature. I'm inspired by outer space. I'm inspired by everything. Yeah. Well, the outer space and the, um, the, the, the northern lights absolutely encapsulate astro world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the question. We have another question here uh, for Eric from Kyle, uh, who says that your work embraces multiple layers, the repetition of familiar shapes and forms, such as circles and waves. Uh, do you have rules or practices that help guide you into beginning a project? Hmm. Yeah. Hey, Kyle. Um, rules or practices? Um, I guess, like, my routine says I do a lot of like morning meditation and typically after not all days some days I want um, to write write out the things that came to mind uh, whether it's just a mind dump to get rid of it or just like something that's troubling me and I'm like um, trying to figure it out and and I don't know if anyone's taken to like journaling you know they say it's good for you it sounds corny but man it helps and eventually you start writing the same thing over and over again and that probably mean something and you should focus in on that and so I'll it's kind of almost like just uh, free writing to then particular words and then word play and then it comes down to just like one word that encapsulates like all that I'm feeling or all that I want to express and from there it's almost like I become uh, and I learned this from an illustrate an illustration teacher Baron's story like you become like a like as if you're training to be a character in a movie like you become that word you be like it's like when you buy a car and all of a sudden you see everybody else who has that same car like everywhere I'm looking everywhere I'm 
all like I'm trying to think and see through the lens of this particular word, uh, particular material, particular whatever. And it just like it becomes a, like a starting point uh, to like, you know, pivot and, and research and read and and just absorb as much as I possibly can till I can finally like ring it out into the studio. Uh, but before I begin even paint to surface, there's uh, doodling, um, again, free doodling, and then eventually creating, you know, whether it be rectangle or square and doing basic gestural compositions and just like really feeling it out to like, I guess, all the, the thoughts and then the visuals start to kind of merge and come to where I feel is enough as a jump, a leaping point to then just like toss it all to the side and make art in the studio. So it's like, like crazy amount of absorbing prep work before I finally just dive in. And then from there, it's just following your intuition. Great. We have a couple of questions here for Laura. Um, the first is if you could explain a little bit of how color works with your brain and just the neuroscience behind color. Mm. That's such a good question because color is so... I realized for all the years I've studied it, it's such a humbling medium. It's like, I don't almost know where to start, but the rods and cones in our eyes are shaped in such a way that it allows us to read human emotion. This is like one of the things they've discovered recently. And um, these subtle fluctuations allow us to understand what each other is feeling. So if you start from just that standpoint of color, you can start to see how powerful it is. Phys Physiologically, you know, I think it's it's one of those things where when color, it kind of bounces back, whatever is absorbed, um, you know, you see, or whatever is absorbed, you don't see, but what bounces back, you do see. And the complexity of it being a wavelength means that you have to even understand physics. I, re I read this incredible thing that if you want to really study color, you have to understand physics, biology, psychology, you know, so it's like the neuroscience of color is so for me, um, it's complex because there are so many different ways that you can perceive color and each of us perceives it a bit differently. And I'm not even including color blindness, which puts a whole nother lens on everything. So I I don't think I answered that very well. Um, it's kind of like a 101 um, for color, but um, the neuroscience of it, I find to be one of the most exciting parts of color because it deals with all of our senses and our emotions. Yeah, there's so much to get into there. Um, and I know we have uh, just a few minutes left in the panel here, but um, this next question is also for Laura, but if um, Eric or Liz, you have thoughts, feel free to chime in. Um, and it's from Sarah in Seattle. Uh, she asks, how do you think color is going to be influential for people in our now empty cities and communities as they come back to life post-COVID? I think it's going to be one of the most important mediums that we have. I think for the very first time, we have seen our cities without people. And we've realized that people bring the color to the cities. And I think that what we've realized is that in um, times of, of expressing our need for justice, people have gone out and they've created some of the most incredible, powerful art. And I think that what we're gonna crave is more of that. 
And I think we're going to crave more community. And I think that we're going to be coming together and that we're going to be using color as a medium to be expressive of not only our community, but our culture and our values. So I think it's going to be one of the most exciting times and um, color will play a really important role. So I'd like to chime in too. And what I'm seeing so far in Seattle, at least, um, is a lot of mural art and a lot of public art uh, being made. So a lot of art that's more accessible to the public, mm-hmm. um, especially since you know it's impossible to go inside or in most cities it's impossible to go inside museums and stuff. So um, yeah, I'm seeing, seeing a lot more color just being infused into the neighborhoods already. Yeah, a lot of beautiful murals going up here at least. Mm-hmm. So exciting. It's a really exciting time. Yeah. Hi, I actually asked that question. Um, Liz, I'm so glad you said that. Hi, I didn't know you were in Seattle. I'm also in Seattle. <laughs> um, yeah, I asked because um, Laura, we've also talked. I'm from Gensler. Um, yeah, it's good to see you again. Um, I actually had a couple of murals during the pandemic. And so now at the beginning of this year, we're starting just to try to figure out like what's our next plan because we did probably like 16 murals or something. Um, which was so great but now it's kind of like thinking of that next step like what our city's going to need kind of explored it like what they needed in the moment but what what are they going to need after the fact um as people come back so thank you guys both for your answers that helps so much keep on going (laughs) (laughs) we're trying (laughs) color helps everything so Um, We had one final question that came in from Janice uh, just now, um, wondering, Liz, are any, well, I suppose this I'll open it up to all the panelists, but um, are there any colors that you view as negative or having bad connotations? Do you label um, colors as um, happy or sad? And I feel like this relates back to um, talking about the context of color a little bit too. So for me, there are colors that I really don't enjoy using, like maroon or brown. Um, But my taste is always changing too, as I change. So nothing is set in stone. And you'll probably still be able to find like some maroon and some brown in my work if you look really hard. It just gets overpowered by other stuff. I think, I mean, the way a color becomes a favorite color is that it actually is the sum total of your positive experiences with it. And so for you, Liz, like having this, these colors, you know, that you have positive experiences with. I don't know what maroon has done or what, you know, in, in the past, but I can tell you that blue is fundamentally always the most favorite color because when people experience it mostly sky and water and you know like and so it isn't any wonder that typically blue is very beloved for people where the yellow greens um the browns they have more negative connotations for people and so they don't get real high up on the on the favorite scale um and may have for them more negative connotations because of their experience with that color. So it's personal, I think. Um, I I guess I should say something. Um, (laughs) Not to fill the air, but you know, you can't have the good without the bad. I I tend to 
you know, gravitate towards certain colors, but I love them all for sure. And I even like black. Like, I feel like there's color in black. Um, like there's color in white. There's the color in like combining colors. Like I'm always looking for like the subtleties. Um, but you know, when you come, when you, you know, lay a certain color next to another color, it makes you appreciate that color even more. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you take a break from color and then jump back to color, it makes you appreciate it even more. So things like that. Um, but I'm also like in this work, even having like the colors within the room be reflected off the surface and paying attention to that as well. So like reflective color. Yeah. But it is interesting. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you everyone for participating in this conversation, for coming into the call, for the panel. Thank you, Tova, Liz, Eric, and Laura. Um, Nicole, thank you as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Tova, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say to wrap it up or, or if we're all, all done. Yeah, I wanted to echo that sentiment. Thank you for everyone and all the panelists for joining in. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 